the, uh, you won't have class the, a week from Thursday, but you'll have a, um, from a week, basically from a week today to two weeks from today to take the test. And you can take as many times as you want. High score counts, but you won't know your score at the end of each one. Yes? Um, and does our paper topic have to be from the best boy binder, or can it be from our book? I prefer that you, uh, I'll talk about that in a second, okay. but I, I prefer that you pick one on the best way binder just um, because it's more readings to choose from. But your paper topic, which were due today, and I thank the seven or eight people that did propose topics. The rest of you did not. I'm going on Okay. I have That's all right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a long process uh, if you don't follow the instructions, which is, remember, it's a why question. The title must be, if you, if you do a video, it's the same thing. It's a why question. We're trying to get you to learn how to think analytically. That means, unlike in high school, it's not a descriptive paper, but it's an analytical paper. Uh, trying to identify the causes of a phenomenon in politics. So you're not doing a paper on a specific event or a specific institution. Um, you might look, for example, to take Somali, you might say, uh, what causes the, um, piracy to be so prevalent in your weak states? And use Somali as a chief example. Or you might do a paper topic on why do um, oil companies or oil tank shipping companies pay ransoms? And again, you, you use the reading and, and your own thoughts to try to answer the question. But this is a transition in your thinking and your training from thinking about specific events to thinking about politics or phenomenon. So I'm trying to get you to think causally, and I'm trying to think, get you to think in terms of three levels of analysis. So causally means your paper will be organized primarily around three or four main causes that answer your why question, which you would answer because, because the root of because is cause. And in terms of level of analysis, you're going to identify factors at the international system, factors at the level of the country and its government and its um, public opinion and civil society. And thirdly and finally, levels of the individual leader. So in any question you might ask, you could go to one, two, or all three levels. And you could define your question as narrowly or as broadly as you want. You could say, I'm only going to look at the ethnic factor to explain why wars start in countries. I know wars have international factors and wars have crazy leaders. You're looking at even the Iran-Iraq war, why, did, why, why were the two countries, a Shia majority country and both of them, at war with each other for 10 years during the 80s that killed a million people? Actually, you could analyze it in terms of the level of the leader, because Saddam was crazy. Saddam wanted to invade Iran, and he did. And that's one of those very rare situations where Actually, the, the characteristics of the country and the conflicts at the international level weren't nearly as important as the type of leader. But you could look inside the country and say Saddam had a national security state where he had to create paranoia to create a police state. And one of the ways you create paranoia is by saying these other guys are out to get us. And the way you prove it is by starting a war with them. And you might also look at the international factor and that both, each, both sides had kind of an imbalance of power. So Iraq was smaller than Iran. Iran's got more power. So Saddam says, I've got to attack now with an element of surprise. Now, this is an example. We, we didn't look at the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s in this class. But if you've 
heard about it or read about it, you know that it was a terrible war. With only 18 million people in Iraq, you know, one in every 30 people were killed, and a lot of them were just young kids put in the front lines as cannon fodder. <clears throat> so let's take the example of Somalia. If you're doing a paper, you don't do the paper on Somalia. You do the paper on piracy, or maybe you do the paper on weak states and ethnic conflicts. And Somalia is data that is an example for the more general point you're trying to make about the question, like to, to what extent uh, does a weak state contribute to piracy, or does it contribute to terrorism? Uh, in, in each of those two examples, you would say uh, piracy can only happen where you have a state that can't control its population. But if you did the reading, you'll notice that most of the pirates actually come from a breakaway state. There are two breakaway states right on Somalia's border. If you look, open up the book and look on chapter 6, you'll see on the map two microstates that have seceded. On page 154, you see that, uh, first of all, we have Somaliland here, which has been completely independent. And then to the right of it, on the northeast corner, is Puntland, which has not been as successful in Sicilia, but most of the pirates are on this little peninsula and they go straight into this little tiny isthmus here. You know, when the super tankers come through the Suez Canal, go down the Red Sea and then try to break out of here, these pirates are hit, sitting there waiting for them. If you're gonna do papering, you know, why do people pay ransom, right? You, you could look at the level of international system by saying, well, if you don't want to take the chance of getting hijacked and have, having to pay ransom, you've got to sail not through the Suez Canal, but all the way down to the Cape of Good Hope, the bottom of Africa, and all the way back. I don't know how much money that is, but that's a whole lot more money than you have to pay for ransom, two or three million dollars. On the other hand, if you pay the two or three million dollars, First of all, the boat's usually in commission, out of commission for three months. There's always a risk you never get it back. Your poor sailors, a dozen or so of them, are in some room in a very hot place, smoking cigarettes and getting nervous while they listen to the guards argue with each other about whether we should kill these guys or not, or arguing about whether the money's enough. And they're not actually doing the negotiating. And as we, as we debated, maybe the way to go is just to sacrifice a few hostages and not pay ransom and go in for the kill. And just kill off all the pirates so everyone gets the idea that we don't care about our own people, our own sailors, and we'll just let them go in order that we can wipe them out the way they were mostly wiped out in Southeast Asia a decade before. So the, the international system has to do partly with the fact that negotiators in London make deals to try to figure out how to pay off in Swiss bank accounts or London bank accounts these Somali warlords who actually aren't in Somalia proper since it's such a weak state, it's in these breakaway states. And it's also because the sailing trip to avoid being exposed, where you sail way out the Indian Ocean and go all the way down to the bottom of Cape Hope, adds days and millions of dollars in expenses to your trip. Um, I guess they built the Suez Canal so that really big ships can go through it, unlike the Panama Canal, which I think you, a lot of ships f sail around the Cape of Capricorn at the bottom of South America because the 
you know, it's just you have to, you can't get big boats through the Panama Canal, but you can get them through the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. I guess the way that canal is built, it's on two sides and they come through, and I don't exactly know how it works. I've never been there. Um, so, in answering your research question here, you know, you, you answer at the level causes at the international system, maybe having to deal with the capability of doing these negotiations with international banks and the cost of the trip to avoid getting captured by pirates. At the level of the international system, it's the breakdown of the Somali state and all the fighting that's been going on between the clans and the warlords and the Islamic courts government followed by the uh, Ethiopian-backed invading government. Um, and so there's no order, plus the governments that last are the ones that raise the most money. The way they can raise money in part is by taxing the pirates for letting them do their business. At the same time that you protect them, you also tax them since they're making big money. And at the level of individual leaders, probably not much to say because we don't know who the, is the leader of Puntland. That would be a tough question on the final. I probably won't ask you where Puntlan is, but that's the breakaway rep republic one of two from Somalia that was created out of the vestiges of British and Italian colonialism that created Somalia after the end of colonial rule in the early 1960s, late 1950s. So that's what I'm trying to get at the papers. I want you to phrase your question first with a why, W-H-Y, so that you give an analytic answer and second, uh, that you describe it in general terms. Uh, if this was a history paper, you'd say, why did Libya have civil war in the year 2011? But in a political science course where you're studying politics and historical events are data, the question would be, say, what are the conditions in which civil war emerges? Colon, the case of Libya where you'd analyze Libya, but you'd also compare it and contrast it very briefly with lots of other civil wars, just based on what you know from the top of your head uh, about civil wars in other countries, whether it's the US Civil War or any of these 40-odd wars that exist out of 193 countries in the world at any given moment in time since the end of the Cold War. Actually, it's decreased recently, so now it's down to under 30 wars, but still 30 wars going on in the world. So. Um, to repeat, I'd like you to post on New Learn as soon as you can a why question phrased in general terms. If you do that, you're 90% there. Then the, the trick is to answer your own question. If you don't do that, then I'll just say, please do it again. Yeah. Um, for those of us who did choose a topic from the CQ research, would you prefer us to go back? No, you can do a CQ Reacher, but, but, but you're probably going to have to rewrite it. Every single one of the questions that were posted on ULEARN did not have the word why to begin with. So I asked you to rewrite it in those terms. But I'm, the next thing I'm going to ask you to do is to rewrite it in general terms, where you're using cases to make a general point about whatever you're analyzing. So we can use CQ Reacher as well as the Westward Yes. Outline is optional. I'm encouraging outlines because I think I can give you useful feedback. Uh, but I, the only thing I require is that you get your paper topic approved. The other thing is you cannot. It's not a research paper. It's a thinking paper. 
you know, you're gonna you're gonna read a chapter in CQ Researcher or a, ch a chapter in the Best Way Binder, and you're gonna do your own outline, drawing from the chapter what's relevant to your research question. If you summarize the CQ Researcher or you summarize a chapter in the EU Binder readings, for example, you will not do it right because you're not organizing your answer around an outline that answers your own research question. Each one of these chapters have so many interesting details at all levels of analysis about a problem. But that you're trying to answer a question about the nature of politics. And this reading is telling you about the trouble horn of Africa, or the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, or piracy around the uh, eastern horn of Africa involving those four major countries and two breakaway republics, Ethiopia, Somalia, Djibouti, and Eritrea, along with those breakaway republics of Somaliland and Puntland. Why is that the poorest area in the world? That would not be a proper question. Why not? Because it's asking a specific question about that part of the world. The appropriate question is, why is the Horn of Africa poor? No. The question is, what explains why certain regions of the world are so much poorer than others? Colon, the case of the Eastern Horn of Africa. So that your paper uses the Eastern Horn of Africa, but it also will make some comparisons based on what you know about other poor regions of the world, like South Asia. But you're not to, you're not to do research. And if you do research, you won't be answering the question right, because you're Paper is supposed to answer the question about poverty or poor regions. What makes, why is, why when countries are poor, they're poor together, typically? Why are developing areas that have rapid economic growth usually rapidly economically growing the, together? And why are rich parts of the world also generally in the same region? Northeast Asia, Western Europe, the United States, rich countries of the world. Why are they all rich in the same area? Um, you don't have to be a rocket science. You don't have to do any research beyond your reading of one chapter to, to make some common sense arguments about a question like that one. So this is an exercise. It's a discipline. It's a discipline like any academic field is a discipline. It's a methodology. And the methodology I'm introducing you to is one that will stand you in good stead for the rest of your life because it will teach you how to outline and it will teach you how to process information that's very interesting but it's not exactly your effort. And what I'm trying to teach you to do most of all, and the only way to do it is to make you do it with my interaction trying to help you even though you may like get exasperated with me, and I hope you don't, but realizing that I'm like your coach and as your coach, what I'm trying to get you to do is a drill that is part of the bigger game, but get, it works on that skill. And in particular, the skill I'm trying to get you to work at is to move from description, what they taught you in high school, to analysis. So analysis answers a question. Happens to be a why question in this class. Uh, it could be a how question in some other class. It could be a where question on the job. But it's, you know, it forces you to take some information that's not organized to answer your question and to reorganize that information to answer the question uh, that you've been given by your boss or by your professor, or in this case, that you choose 
only that I require you answer a question, a why question, with basically the word because. And most of you will have about three major because answers. Everybody with me? So if, if you're not following everything I've said, you know, listen again to this talk on the, the iTunes U. I don't know if you've been experimenting with that, but uh, all the lectures are there. So our analysis that we come to our conclusions, we're not going to be based on the accuracy or grade on the accuracy of them, correct? It, your conclusion uh, is, like anything, debatable. So there's no right or wrong answer by definition the way you can say 2 plus 2 is 4, okay? What I'm asking you actually to think about is to make a case for your conclusion as to why companies are so willing to pay ransoms or whatever question you have. But I'm also asking you to think about this. How do you know what you know? What, is the strengths, what are the strengths and weaknesses of your argument? What are the strengths and weaknesses of counterarguments or other causes that you don't think are as important, but maybe somebody else might think are as important? So the idea here is you become critical thinkers, not critical in the sense that you're criticizing policy, but critical thinkers in that you're trying to figure out how you know what you know, and what are the limitations of your knowledge? What are the strengths and what are the weaknesses of your arguments? And what are the strengths and weaknesses of counterarguments about the causes of these phenomena? This is not a policy paper. This is not an ideological paper about what the government should do or should not do. Rather, this is an analytical paper about what are the causes of political phenomena. And the political uh, phenomena are subjects that you will uh, draw out of the reading. Notice, you know, out of the two chapters on Somalia, one on piracy and one on you know, terrorism, basically. Um, I formulated three different questions already. I could probably list 10 different topics that could come out of these two chapters, all why questions. You know, why does the West or the United States fund governments that have terrible human rights records in, the, in certain parts of the world? And the answer is in the book, it's because they're the enemy of my enemy is my friend. These guys who torture, murder, invade are against our bad guys, namely the terrorists. So you can, the conclusion is that great powers will fund groups that are not very nice as long as they serve our purposes. Now, you can still make, say, there are strengths and weaknesses to that particular argument. You can say, well, they don't do it every time. And it seems like when they quoted in the book uh, Mr. Johnson that Obama's people have a different view on that policy than the Bush people did. So it's possible that if the US does what the guy who's quoted said they would do, then Democrats tend to favor human rights and Republicans tend to favor strong <laughs> support for, for those forces fighting terrorism no matter what dirty, lethal, terrible, repressive tactics they use in war. So that's how you, know, you look at it and you say, does that make sense? Well, actually, no, because in the chapter, they also mentioned the fact that this Obama appointee, Assistant Secretary of State for Africa, took a totally different view. Now, you could also say, but did the, is Obama really doing anything different? 
you may not know, and that's all right. If you don't know, it doesn't make any big deal. But you could say, that's what they say. Should we take him at his word? Or should we be a little bit suspicious? Should we take the French, French attitude, plus ça change, plus ça casse la même chose? Anyone know what that famous expression means? The more things change, the more they stay the same. They talk a different game, but do they act? Don't act watch what I do, not what I say. Yeah. Um, technically, with paper like printable aspects, are you going to have any kind of rubric or anything? Like, do you want AP style or? No, just since you're using assigned reading only, just a parentheses, author, and page number. Okay, that's the only citation. I don't even need, don't need a bibliography, don't need the usual. Because you're not allowed to use outside sources. Can I do both? No. This is a thinking assignment, not a research assignment. This is an assignment to read a chapter very carefully and think about it and create your own so answer to the research question. You can use the book and the binder, right? Oh, you can use any reading on the syllabus, but you cannot, and, you, and you're encouraged to use more than one. Oh, so you can use an outside No. Okay. You cannot use an outside Anything on the syllabus. More than one, okay. More than one assignment on the syllabus, yes. It's really one is challenging enough, don't you think? <sighs> You're ambitious. Um, is there any reason why you just can't put all your effort into one or the other? Well, you know, if you <laughs> if you you know keep consulting on you learn and and follow my advice, you'll get an A on either. I, I, the thing about the video is that you really have to go to the digital aquarium and take one class and using the camera so you can use their professional equipment and one class and using an editor. If you get an Apple system, you use Final Cut Pro. If you use a Windows system, then unless you want to buy the software, you've got to use the software that comes with Windows. And that's a lot of cutting and pasting and editing. But you know, you're going to have to be good at interviewing some people as well as editing what you get on uh, most people go to YouTube, but you can obviously get better quality on news sites. Uh, you have your own stuff. You've got to do voiceover and, and captions. That's super time consuming. I, I really can't see how busy people would have time for both. <coughs> you have time for both? I do. And you have a job, too? I don't. I don't work. Oh, well. <laughs> um, you're a lucky fellow. Um, I still would urge you to put because if you do the video option, it's required that you upload it on YouTube. And then the reason I do that is so that it forces you to show your employers, see what I can do for you. <laughs> and also, at least for as long as you keep it on YouTube, then I can tell my friends, see what my students have done. Um, I think if you have a professional aspiration to work for a non-government organization or a media company, the video option is a really good learning experience. Uh, but it's not going to be any less or more time. I mean, both both assignments will take you some time. Um, I know for the paper we're only supposed to use the books that are on syllabus. Yes. For the video. The video, obviously, by definition, right. you can use whatever you want. But when you were talking about interviews, do we have to set up interviews, or can we use clips from other interviews? You have to have a good three or four minutes of your own interviews in there. 
you know, the exact amount of time is five, between five and 10 minutes, very roughly speaking. Um, the video, though, has to meet the requi same criteria for the title as the paper. So even if you're doing a video, you still have to get your title approved. So you, know, you, you could certainly do a really good video on why ransoms are paid to pirates off, you know, off a weak states, right? And there you'd get the video of the negotiations in London. You get the videos that they have of the sailors inside the room after they get liberated. You get the videos of the pirates capturing. You have the videos of the attacks of the boats. You, have, you can have videos of the boats themselves. There have been 30 or 40 super tankers that have been captured just in the last year. Um, you can have pictures of the, the families who were killed and all the crying that goes on and make it dramatic if you care to. Uh, it all depends on what your topic is and what makes sense. But the point is to organize your video to answer your same question, the same way you'd organize a paper to answer your own same question. So the discipline really comes into the thinking phase, the planning phase. Generally, I recommend when you write papers, one-third research, one, which is just reading the chapter, one-third planning, which is doing your outline, and one-third writing. Of the three, the hardest is the planning. It's the one that students rarely do and do well. And worst of all, when they have a really good outline, then they don't use it. You want to wait and know how to get an A? Here's the way to get an A. Do a really good outline, half-page outline that I approve, and then use that outline. Because the, the easiest of the three is the writing. That's just executing your outline. The hardest of the three is the outline. Once you learn how to outline, you'll get an A in every single paper you write the rest of your life, whether it's in school or for a boss. Because the, what you have to develop the ability to do is say self-criticism. Does this outline answer my question that my boss gave me to answer? Or that my professor approved of my paper topic? I will tell you bluntly on ULEARN, if you choose to post your half-page outline on ULEARN, whether it does or it doesn't, because I think that's the way to, to tell you. But what you really want to learn is how to do it yourself so that your boss isn't really angry when you hand in something that he or she did not ask you to do. You want to know why Coke stock's going to go up or down, right? Well, don't tell me what Coke stocks did yesterday. Tell me what Coke stock's going to do tomorrow. Unless you can show to me that what Coke stock did last year is a reasonable basis for the future. But you know, you got you have to explain that. Otherwise, past is not prologue. Don't you always have to bring past stuff though? Is no. Indicator that it all depends on the questions you're given. If you're given a question and the boss says, tell me what Coke stock is doing in the future, most people would say, well, earnings are expected to be X. Uh, the market for Coke products in Europe is Y. Um, we're having uh, the price of sugar is X. They don't talk too much about what happened before. You might say, in the past, Coke has surpassed the expectations of Wall Street analysts or always fell short. Would you say that's that would be relevant because you'd say, you know, generally analysts have been consistently pessimistic or consistently optimistic about earnings expectations on Coke. But you'd only bring in the past to the extent that it answers your question. So you're not writing history. 
if the research questions about the future, you're not writing history, unless you're explaining what about history is relevant about the future. Now it's true, history tends to predict the past, but there is a logical fallacy, and I'll give you an example. Um, is it always true, and actually this came up in the blog that I posted on the internet last week about Obama and democracy in the Middle East, which I put the link on ULEARN in case you want to, you're curious about what I write about. But, and it came up in this article. Um, is it always true that when things get worse, whatever action you took was a bad idea? Because that always dominates our politics, right? The examples I used in this blog was Ronald Reagan was even with Jimmy Carter in the 1980 presidential race. And then Reagan turned away from the camera and said, are you better off today than you are four years ago? If the answer is no, then you got no reason to vote for Mr. Carter because he was president. Very powerful moment. History was changed in that one moment because from that moment on, Carter never recovered in that presidential debate moment. What's the logical problem with that statement? Well, that's, that's true. But what, what is the logical problem of what he actually said? The steps that Carter was taking may have been necessary even in the short run to produce a better result in the long run. So Carter's being judged falsely. It's well, that's, one, that's one aspect. One is that um, Carter may be doing the right thing. Right. And, and it, would anyone want to put it a little bit differently? I think this, the, uh, the answer falls upon well, it falls in opinion, but, but it's, not, it's not purely subjective because I'm asking a question about logical fallacy. What's wrong with that logic? It's nothing to do with whether you like Reagan or Carter. What's wrong with that logic? There's two things wrong with it. The first is a general point. When things get worse, the action you took may not have made it worse. In fact, it might have made it less worse. You got a cholera epidemic, it goes up like this, right? If you can make that curve where the increase is a lot flatter, things are still getting worse. But they're, not, they're getting worse at a lot less bad than if it had been geometrically increasing sky high. Right? In Haiti, the number of cholera people, people dying of cholera continues to increase. And yet the CDC, the World Health Organization, have been down there working their you-know-what's off, saving lives left and right. Why? Because, in fact, cholera would have been, instead of killing 3,000 people since the outbreak last summer, it would have killed 30,000, 300,000. And the second reason it's not a logical argument is that, uh, as you said, Jimmy Carter may have been taking good steps. Or put it, to put it differently, the question is, who would have been, done a better job, Jimmy Carter or Gerald Ford? Because he was the one that ran against Carter. Right? And Gerald Ford or anybody who would have been president would have had the two oil price shocks, which led to five times each price increases of petroleum because OPEC got organized. And second, Iran hostage taking, which would have which presumably would have happened independently of any president, which would have embarrassed any president. I guess you could make the argument that Carter, by allowing the Shah to leave. Um, brought it on himself. But the Republicans were even, were even friendlier to the Shah, so it's 
presumably they would have been just the same if the Republican had been president. So, you know, the question is not, are you better off than you are four years ago? No, the logical question is, are you better off with President Carter, where things have gotten worse, than what ha would have happened if Gerald Ford had been elected instead of Carter in the 1976 election four years ago? That's the question. So the question I posed in this op-ed was, uh, are we better off with Obama's policy of waiting and waiting in all of these Middle Eastern democratizations, or are we be would we be better off uh, with any of these previous presidents? Would they have done the exact same thing, or would they have done what they did in the past, which is to recognize the democratic forces? But in the Middle East, level of analysis, international politics, the alternative may be Islamist parties or terrorists. And it's plausible to imagine that all these other presidents the last 30 years would be doing the same thing. Or in fact, they might have been much more on the side of giving weapons to the army than getting, going on the side of democratic forces. And a lot more repression. Now this is, yeah, right, this is opinion. But what I was getting at is asking the right question from an academic point of view is not the same thing as asking the question that gets you elected president. Because what, what gets really, uh, what makes good effective politics is not necessarily logical or the best policy. So for example, uh, if we're trying to figure out you know, what's the best policy in a democracy, we do what the public wants in one theory of democracy. But what the public wants may be ill-advised, genocidal, or whatnot. You can you know, manipulate the masses to be in favor of anything. So in our example of the pirates, if you took an American public opinion poll, would the American public be in favor of saving those poor hostages or sacrificing the hostages and killing off the pirates? I, I, I could just see on TV the wife and kids of each one of those sailors sitting in that hot room with, in their bathing suits, 125 degrees in, you know, these are 130 degree days out there in one room, and they're crying on TV at night, and the president's going to say, okay, let's go in and kill the pirates and know the hostages will all be killed. I think the United States is pretty bloodthirsty people. I think we haven't. We only went into after those pirates last week, after they killed the hostages. There were no hostages to protect. Wasn't Navy SEALs that rescued the yeah, they managed to save him with a perfect shot. Right, and it's a and it's human policy not to and, and what's his name on 24? Oh, right. Jack Bauer, right? Everybody else gets killed except Jack Bauer. I, every time he goes around the bend and points the gun, he never, no one ever shoots at him, or he always gets out of the way. I mean, is that the way it is in real life? By the way, that, you know that Jack Bauer stuff, um, he says he, he doesn't play by the rules, right? And gets things done. But the whole plot is so ridiculous. I mean, his daughter you know, gets kidnapped and her, you know how these plot, I mean, it's one far-fetched combination. And torture always works. And then a ticking time bomb, always, they always manage to pull it out. Why do Americans love shows like that? Yeah, but it's so ridiculous. Everything, everything falls your way just in the nick of time. It's not it's even. Ridiculous. Mission Impossible in the 
Yeah, but that was a joke. <laughs> I mean, that, no one took that seriously. You don't take what Jack Bauer that seriously. But they're laughing all the way to the bank, I guess. And 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 Charlie Sheen, I didn't watch the show. What is <laughs> what is that show? <laughs> and it's the most popular show. No, But I don't get it. I mean, but why does why do people want to watch shows that the, the plot is like totally unrealistic? Just because it's dramatic. Okay, so we want to add a little spice into our lives, like killing a few of our hostages. Mm -hmm. Get those pirates. Especially since you're just sitting in bed and you're just exactly. <laughs> not really watching carefully, I guess. But I, I, when I'm watching there, I'm saying, why, I, why should I get like all tense and excited when I know that they're always going to pull it out? And they, you know, they always go to a commercial when it's exactly the moment <coughs> when someone's about to be stabbed or shot, or the daughter's about to be raped, or you know, name it, or, except that it doesn't happen. Somebody else's daughter gets raped, but never his. And that's the nature of popular entertainment. It's always yeah. it's very safe. Place. Popular culture is popular culture is, is very is very predictable, reliable, and exactly. therefore. You know that's going to turn out. And you enjoy the ride. It's like a it's like a, a roller coaster, right? You don't expect to be thrown off the roller coaster. You know you're going to come back. So maybe you're hoping it happens. You can enjoy the. But if it does happen, then you end up being disappointed. Like when the movie has a bad. But somehow popular culture is so disappointing because it's so predictable. <laughs> right. But if they had unhappy endings, nobody would watch? I would watch. Well, there would be a, yeah, a segment of society that would appreciate yeah. like buying products. They're going to redo some of the endings of the very disappointing endings they have. Right. Yeah. In a sense. How many people want more unhappy endings? <laughs> nobody? I do. How many people really love popular culture? I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. How many, how many people are into avant-garde, anti-popular culture? And how many people think that avant-garde is just as predictable as popular culture? It's just the opposite, right? But it's counterculture, it becomes just its own conventional. Yeah, yeah. It's conventional and being unconventional. So who, what's the real unconventional? Yeah, Main Street. Main Street? Main Street is not It is. I mean, I don't... It's a yin and yang. Like, you gotta have both. I mean, it's not gonna be... But how about an alternative to both? An alternative for, to both? Yeah, if you're not in the counterculture, you're in the Main Street. Well, can't you be in neither? None of the above? No, then you're counterculture. Can't you be miscellaneous? Yes. You've got to be smart enough to tell the difference. 
Well, but there's no way to achieve being miscellaneous because either you're individual or you're kind of conforming. Uh, and I don't really. I've never Can't you just say none of the above? I don't want to be a professional. I don't want to be a school teacher. I don't want. But then you still fall into that category in some way. I mean, I don't know. Well, you got to earn a living, I guess. All right, so let's look at the troubled horn of Africa first, and then we'll look at a little bit at the Middle East. Um, this chapter describes, as I said, four countries and plus two breakaway republics on the horn. It's that region of the world that's incredibly poor, made out of colonial empires from Italy, Britain, and France. Italy got in the game late, grabbed a piece of Ethiopia it became the country of Eritrea in the early 1990s. It tried to go further south and grab parts of Somaliland, ethnic Somalis, and grab into the highlands of Ethiopia, but it was held back. Uh, prior to World War II, um, Mussolini was striving for power, and he wanted to be a great European leader. And Il Duce said, I'm going to stick a dagger dagger into Africa like the English and the French. And they chose to take on the mighty Ethiopians who had never been colonized. And he did capture the capital, but he never captured the countryside. And then he withdrew because the Brits uh, armed an insurgent rebellion against the Italians where they're too busy losing the war. But it did show that uh, even the most remote part of Africa in terms of being in highlands and countryside, the second most populous area of all of Africa um, could be momentarily conquered but not held. And like Afghanistan, which has never been colonized, and the Brits lost three wars in Afghanistan since the late 18th century to the early 20th century, it also showed there are areas of the world where even the mighty Europeans can't conquer. But both Afghanistan and Somalia and Ethiopia are the poorest parts of the world. And the very traits that made it almost impossible for the mighty British, the mighty Italians, and other European powers, unable to conquer Ethiopia, Somalia, or what is today those, uh, Somalia, and Afghanistan are the traits that keep them in war, incredibly poor, and engaged in both uh, wars of ideological and Islamist religious foundations and systematic uh, smuggling and organized crime in the form of uh, heroin trafficking out of Afghanistan and piracy uh, in Somalia. So we can see a number of generalizations about politics. First, that uh, if you don't have a functioning state, it's hard to conquer such a functioning state because it's really decentralized into clans and warlords. And second, because it's decentralized into clans and warlords, the economy is usually based on decentralized trafficking of smuggling or taking kidnapping people for ransom or ships for ransom but grabbing the hostages because essentially uh, that's what keeps the Europeans or the Americans from coming in with their militia and navy to take them away. Uh, now the pirates are no dummies, they're very smart businessmen and they realize that if they make too much money and it gets to be too expensive, then they will go in and sacrifice hostages. There is a point, right? If instead of paying $3 million a ship, they pay $30 million a ship, 
the ship owners might say, this is ridiculous. This is, you can't have them bankrupting the oil industry because then we'll have no oil. And the price of oil is already $4 a gallon. And it's going to be $8 a gallon if we can't get these oil tankers through the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal. Um, at the same time, the U.S. is mostly interested in terrorism. Why is the U.S. so interested in terrorism? Isn't it kind of like an exaggeration? How many people in the world are really willing to blow themselves up? And think about it. The chapter mentioned two suicide bombers that went into Puntland and into Somaliland. And those are the first two suicide bombers there ever have been. And not one Somali person since then, or ever, has ever gone after a U.S. target. Why are we so worried about al-Qaeda in Somalia if they've never attacked a Western target? And they only had their first two suicide bombs in history against these two breakaway republics. Is there, is there really that many people in the world who are willing to blow themselves up? And if so, is it only against their own peoples? Like most of the suicide bombing in Palestine and Israel, or their neighbors? But I mean, when's the last time a suicide bomber came to the United States? 9-11, <coughs> right? What was the previous time? That's it. Now, it was a very, very scary time. We didn't know what was next. And there are two ways to interpret it. They haven't come back because we've done such a good job. The other thing is that it's all overblown and exaggerated, designed to empower the military-industrial complex and develop huge budgets like the trillions of dollars that are spent in Fort Meade, Maryland alone on all the supercomputers that is the home of the National Security Agency, which has the richest county in America now, not one of the rich suburbs of New York or Detroit anymore. It's a DC suburb of nothing but government employees and contractors that spend trillions of dollars tracking Al-Qaeda on satellite spying. Not human intelligence, but what do they call it? Uh, machine intelligence, I forgot the term, but um, yeah. Um, so yeah. my question is, just, just to repeat the question, which is it? Is it overblown? Or is this a very real threat and we kept it at bay for 10 years because we're doing the right thing? Now we know we know that was why we went into Afghanistan, but what I'm asking is for the next 10 years, not just Afghanistan, not just Iraq, but the trillions of dollars we're spending fighting terrorism. And we're literally spending trillions. If you add it all up, about one trillion. Is that money a complete waste? Is it a partial success? Or is it money well spent? Um, they've been back, they just haven't been successful. But we know that you try to hit back two or three times. Yeah. Well, but the question is, could we stop them any other way? The guy was on a no-fly list, and he got on the plane with Talib from Nigeria via Yemen Christmas a year ago. We, he, was on, he shouldn't have gotten on the plane in the first place. Why we let him on the plane? <coughs> That's not all that expensive. I mean, that's just a matter of good management. Sorry? Someone didn't do their job. 
Somebody didn't do their job. Yeah, Stuff happens, as Donald Rumsfeld says. Pardon? Stuff happens. But in other words, it, it may not be worth a trillion dollars. Should we be spending all this money arming Ethiopia to invade Somalia because the enemy of our enemy is our friend? And so uh, Somalia was taken over by the Islamic courts. Islamic courts are pro-Al-Qaeda, or so we worry. And even if Ethiopia killed tens of thousands of innocent civilians and tortured, murdered others, is that worth the price? These are real people, after all. Do they have rights? These are important questions, in my opinion. I, I know it doesn't get on the news, mm -hmm. but it does involve, A, the expenditure of your taxes, and B, the killing of innocent people. Is it worth it? No. Well, we don't have the money. The Chinese are lending us the money. So, by the way, by, spent, by fighting all these wars with money we don't have, we're more and more in debt to the Chinese. The Chinese have a huge trade deficit with us. Is that because we don't make enough good stuff and the Chinese don't want to buy our stuff? You're making most of our stuff. That's right. Every time you buy an iPod, Well, there are lots of interesting questions. Let's start with the first one. Should we be spending a trillion dollars a year fighting terrorism and backing up governments that are committed to fighting our enemies? I think we're doing more. We got one no. I think we're doing more harm than good. Doing more harm than good. Anybody yes? I think it just depends. I think you have to kind of break it down and see like what it's going to individually and what's working with what they're spending. Okay, is it worth it to spend to arm Ethiopia to invade Somalia? so they can kill all these civilians who supposedly support the, the Islamic court's <laughs> government? That's a good piece of it. I don't know, I don't know. It's well, I'm telling you, they, they killed 40,000, it's in the chapter, they killed 40,000 civilians just to conquer the country and they can only hold the country for two years. What was the benefit of? The benefit was theoretically we're fighting agents of Al-Qaeda, even though no one from Somalia has ever attacked a Western target, terrorist attack. And no terrorists And according to the chapter, we, they didn't find any terrorists, well, so any of the big terrorists. It probably wasn't worth it. What's that? So that probably wasn't worth it. Wasn't worth it in retrospect. Should we have tried? And nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? Not only was it not worth it, it produces this entrenchment. Well, it's even worse. According to the chapter, at least some of the people quoted in the chapter, they hate us more now. Right. This area was not anti-American. Now it's totally anti-American because what they see is American guns being used by foreign Ethiopians killing Somalis. Somalis are mostly Muslims, the Ethiopians are mostly Christians. Although there are plenty of Muslims and Christians in both countries, but that the regimes are these religions and we're reinforcing a war of religion which rebounds all over the world as America's killing Muslims so from Indonesia, the most populated Muslim country in the world, to Pakistan, to Bangladesh, to actually India, which has a huge Muslim minority, they hate us more. Or so the chapter would let us to be. Should we worry about that?
Okay, so that, that persuades me, except for one thing. My government told me Al-Qaeda's there. Are we going to sit back and let Al-Qaeda grow? I think they could have used less money to find out that, that was, there was no imminent threat. They could have taken part of that money to pay off China, but they're spending some Your grandchildren won't have to pay off China by the time we're through I know, this. I'm saying they could have, in hindsight. You know, that's been 19 years since people have been um, going into 19 years. 19 years of, of 19 governments in Somalia, each one lasts a year. We're trying to get them to organize a government with departments and agencies when it's actually a bunch of clans running around town here, there, and everywhere. Why can't we let them have the kind of government that they want based on their social structure? Lots of little villages and tribal leaders. It's a, it's a country of nomads, peasants, and very, very poor people. It doesn't have modern organizations. They have a, to please us, they have a national government with departments, and none of the departments have any money in their budget, according to the article. They've got the Department of State, the Department of Defense, they got everything. The problem is they don't have any money. And in both Ethiopia and Somalia, 75% of the people would starve if we didn't feed them. And it all got started in the 70s and 80s when they had the first famines. So we brought in humanitarian relief and that wiped out the farmers because nobody would buy their food because they're getting it for free. So the first famine we saved lives, but then we created more famines because they don't produce their own food. And both countries have all these huge armies composed of people who would have been farmers, but because they're at war with each other, they have these huge armies where they have to be making war instead of making food. This is a dilemma, and believe me, it affects us indirectly. How does it affect us indirectly? Who can tell me why? We travel, and then people have We have to get patted down at the airport. I refuse to go to the, I went to Toronto this weekend for a conference, and I didn't want to go into one of those museum machines with the glass yeah. around it. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they patted me down, but I thought it's just, you know, boom, 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 no. you're done. No, it's, it's extensive. Like I had front and back, <laughs> let's call <laughs> <laughs> let's call my privates were touched. Oh. And uh, and he warned he said, I want I'm warning you. And I mean the guy was professional, but I was mostly mad because of how much time it took. About oh, 10 minutes. Because I don't want my innards being electrified. I don't know if it's like really, that. but I'm not taking anybody's word for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like those cell phones you all use. Your head's the antenna. That's going straight through your mind. And, you know, if it gives a rodent cancer in the, of the brain, you know, it's like the, the, the test they used to do on coffee. If you get you get cancer from coffee if you give caffeine to the dog, but it's equivalent of sixty cups a day. So, but. There was no cancer until we had all these modern devices, though. So you're getting it from something. Right, but you got to give up everything. <laughs> well, I, I would, 
I would recommend not eating processed food. That's a good place to start. Yes, Go completely raw. No, you can cook. You can boil it. You can cook your vegetables, but don't. You know the theory about the grocery store, the perimeter of the grocery yeah, store. What's that? Basically, everything that's good for you is on the perimeter of the store. You mean dumps? Oh, yeah, there's stuff in the store. The way it's set up, oh. the big fresh bakery, produce, meat. But that's the stuff that has chemicals too. Well, but the stuff that's really bad for your health stuff is packed. You just have to read everything. You cannot, you cannot eat anything if your grandmother never heard of it on the back of the label. Right. You, you, you think it's that? You just don't worry about it? Oh, I don't know. So we wouldn't be eating anything if like, we didn't eat stuff that our like, a grandmother hasn't heard of? No, I you mean, can just buy your carrots and cook your carrots. <laughs> is that like cooking is so unheard of? It's so time-consuming. It's a time-consuming. Frosted Yeah, but the time you spend <laughs> now, <laughs> frosted flakes is frosting your innards. I bet it is. Here's something to read the label every time you sit down to eat something out of a plastic bag. Just read it and say, that's what I'm putting in me. Just read it. Take a look at it. When you eat, eat that bag of chips, that's 50% of the sodium. Sodium causes high blood pressure. What about you don't care about high blood pressure now, but you will in 25 years. And so do canned foods. Canned foods are nothing but you just keep it soft. My favorite one is cheese food. <laughs> All right, um, let's look at the Middle East for a second. Uh, why, why does Israel and Palestine always in conflict? Because the Israelis kick the Palestinians out. And that's it? I mean, that's one reason. Did they um, kick them out? I mean, no, they moved them to different parts, and then they occupied certain parts where they had agreed. Okay, let's get the history down. What happened first? What was your question? I'm sorry. I'm Why are the Israelis and Palestinians in conflict? Now, a lot of this history is contested, right? We have narratives, and each side has a totally different version of history. So I'll give you the two versions of history. The first version is the Israeli point of view. The Israelis never left. Most of them left after the Romans kicked them out the second time. I don't know what it was, 80 AD or something like that. 70. But they had a few people still there. Never left. Uh, and then uh, the Zionist movement was started in the late 19th century by a guy named Theodore Herzl because of persecution against the Jews. There were pogroms by the Tsar, etc. Then in World War One, you know, with Lawrence of Arabia and everything, the British persuaded all these Arab peoples to fight on their side. Uh, and then instead of turning over the land to the Arabs who took it from the Ottoman Turks, the British grabbed it for itself. 
One of those lands was in Palestine. Versailles Treaty and our good Georgian friend Woodrow Wilson decided that they'd give independence to the colonies in Europe in the three European empires, but none of the colonies of the Ottoman Empire got independence. At the end of World, towards the end of World War I, the British Lord Balfour declared that the Jews would get a homeland on the condition that they respected the rights of the Muslims and Arabs in Palestine uh, to live in peace and have their rights. At the end of World War II, after the Holocaust, they said these Jews cannot be left to be at the fate of people in Europe, and so the British uh, wanted to get out because the Muslims and the Jews were fighting each other, and there was a resolution in the UN General Assembly for an Israeli state and for a Palestinian state. That res resolution was without a negative vote in 1947. Nothing happened. In the 1948, the Jews declared independence to Israel. In that war, uh, the Arab states said they'll wash Israel from the sea. They're not allowed to come into existence. And they encouraged all the Arabs to leave Israel. At the same time, uh, most Israeli historians will admit that there were terrorist groups on the Israeli side. One was called the Stern Gang, and the other one was called the Irgun. The Irgun included Menachem Begin, who became prime minister of Israel. Uh, in fact, made peace with Yasser Arafat. Uh, sorry, no, with um, Anwar, Sadat. Anwar Sadat. Thank you. Uh, at the Camp David peace agreement in 1979, I think is the year. Um, so from the Israeli point of view, the Arab states told the Palestinians to leave, and while there were t regrettable terrorist acts that, w that was, uh, and, and was most unfortunate, that was a minor issue on why they left. Um, other historians would say there was deliberate ethnic cleansing by the Israelis. The narrative from the Muslim or Arab side would be that it was English colonialism. It wasn't up to the English to decide what would happen. Uh, Israel is, was Muslim land. Uh, the UN is irrelevant. That was controlled by the Western powers. Uh, and we don't recognize Israel. And Israel hadn't been there for 2,000 years. That's 2,000 that's years. And you know, we'll respect the Jewish holy sites, and we'll respect the Christian holy sites, and the Armenian holy sites and the Greek Orthodox holy sites and all those other holy sites on the Temple Mount in the old city of Jerusalem, but it's ours, not yours. So, uh, and they said, and they kicked us out in that war. And then in 1967, Israel said, we attacked first because the Egyptian army closed the Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, we had experimented with withdrawing after the 1956 war, it didn't work. Now we're not going to give up the land until you trade land for peace. We've proven it twice, first with, it, with Egypt by giving back to Sinai Peninsula and then making peace with Jordan that if you give us security and recognition, we'll normalize relations. Palestinians under the PLO's successor government, Fatah, came close to making a peace agreement twice. First, under Ehud Barak as prime minister, um, where Arafat decided not to take his last offer and make a counteroffer. Supposedly, he offered about 95% of the West Bank, but they're not going to give up Jerusalem, which Israel has already annexed. East Jerusalem is 
98% or 95% ethnic Arab, although Jewish people have been moving in. And also the old city has other religions there. Um, the second time was two years ago when uh, an Israeli prime minister who's left office because of corruption, what's his name? You know? Anyway, the, la the previous prime minister also came very close, and those uh, negotiation maps were revealed publicly and discredited Fatah because they were also going to give up Jerusalem with you know, promises of autonomy in East Jerusalem, but still be a unified capital, which the Israelis had annexed when they conquered East Jerusalem in the 67 war, which is basically behind the old city up to the barrier wall, wall that they've created. It's been very, very hard to negotiate a peace agreement. Why? First, the negotiation positions are very far apart. But the Israeli security seems to be the big issue, they say, because of all the suicidal terrorist attacks, especially in the second intifada, which began soon after 9-11, instigated by uh, Ariel Sharon's deliberate march up the Temple Mount to the top of the old city, uh, the uh, Wailing Wall to the third most holy site in Islam, where Muhammad is said, the Prophet, please be upon his name, uh, to have ascended into heaven directly from that location. Um, from the Palestinian point of view, they demand a right to return, which the Israelis will never accept because if all those Palestinian and, uh, descendants of the ancestors come back, They'll be the majority of Israel, and Israel is supposed to be a majority Jewish state. The Israelis say, look, we're quite willing to have a small country, but we want a secure country. We were small to begin with. We're still extremely small. We've got 9 million people in a very small space. Our, we don't need a lot of space because our economy is high tech. But the one thing we must have is assurances that you're not going to send suicidal bombers into our country and kill our people. Like everywhere else in the developed world, people are scared to death of terrorism. From the Palestinian point of view, as you kicked us out of our homes, we want our homes back. We want one country, and everybody's a citizen, and there's no such thing as a Jewish homeland. And that's the Palestinian Fatah point of view. Hamas is even more ideological. We're going to not only create one state, we're going to kick all the Jews out because they all came here, and they had no right to come here in the first place. Given this situation, why is it that the United States support, supports the Israelis, and why do most of the world support, including most of Europe, support the Palestinians, um, which, given that diametrically opposing support, makes it very hard to negotiate a proposition for a peace agreement? Uh, first, the status of Jerusalem. The capital uh, has been annexed by Israel, and from a pure international law point of view, they had no right to do it. It was a pure act of colonial acquisition. The East, East Jerusalem was completely Arab, had been for centuries, and uh, autonomy is not good enough. It could be a separate city, city of East Jerusalem, as a way to partition the city to solve that big problem. But for the Israelis, they want the entire area because they're Jewish holy sites and Christian holy sites on the eastern side of the old city on what was East Jerusalem. And a lot of Christians in the world would like to go to the Mount of Olives and the other places of the crucifixion story 
that are mostly in East Jerusalem and not part of the pre-1968 seven borders of Jerusalem. Second, um, Israel has been on the US side during the Cold War because initially the Soviet Union was allied with the Arab states, especially Egypt and Syria, and Russia and other countries are still allied with Syria. The United States switched from being relatively distant from Israel in the 1956 war in which Israel fought with France and Britain to get the Suez Canal back from Nasser, who was the Egyptian leader who nationalized the Suez Canal. Um, the effort has been to try to uh, protect Israel as a democratic ally for the United States in a, a zone of area where we have many enemies. And even to this day, you know, Syria is allied, was allied with Saddam, it was allied with Iran from time to time. Uh, Jordan even allied with Saddam during the war of 1991. Under such conditions, as long as the United States is allied with Israel, which, uh, whose support we can talk about, it's very, very hard for us to back down from our ally when we know it's surrounded with enemies that would like to wipe it off the face of the map. Why does the United States support Israel? In addition to anti-Soviet motives during the Cold War, uh, although the claim is exaggerated in my view, there is a very powerful Jewish lobby headed by the American-Israeli Public Affairs Council or Committee, but I don't think it's nearly as powerful as Mearsheimer and Walt argued in their famous or infamous book, depending on whether you like the book or hate it. Um, that book is more like a conspiracy theory. But it is a powerful lobby, and as powerful as any ethnic group lobby is. And most ethnic groups have a one-dimensional view of US foreign policy. Greek Americans worry about Greece. Turkish Americans worry about Turkey, and so forth. Do you remember the title of the book? Uh, Mearsheimer book? Just, just Google Mearsheimer Walt, and you'll get it. And there was, there was a shorter article version of it that was published in a British mag, uh, journal. Um, third, many Christians support Israel for a variety of reasons. First, Israeli civilization is close to Christian civilization, so there's a cultural argument. And within that cultural argument, there are also Christians who believe in the idea of uh, the Jews as the chosen people and therefore our friends, or uh, the coming of the apocalypse predicted in the book of Revelations uh, has certain interpretations to it that would suggest that we'd be better off not having Arabs in charge as opposed to having Israelis in charge in that scenario. Um, and so there's an interesting switch. So unlike the anti-Semitism of, of Europe where they were Catholicism and, and Christianity regarded the Jews as killing Jesus as opposed to the Romans, you now have the Christians in the United States mostly looking at Jews as in a very favorable light and looking at Israel in a very favorable way. Um, fourth, the United States uh, does get intelligence help from Israel. The Mossad is the best intelligence agency in the world. Uh, whenever we look for help and insight and advice, we look to Mossad for international intelligence and the Israeli security agency, formerly known as the GSS, the Shin Bet, or the General Security Service for Intelligence. Unfortunately, Israelis told us that torture worked, 
And that's one of the main reasons why the Bush administration adopted torture as a policy at Guantanamo. Um, Israelis still practice torture against Palestinians, and that's also to be regretted in my personal humble opinion. But the Mossad is the best secret agents in the world. You want something very difficult and risky to do, like liberating airplanes that have been hijacked. You don't rely on the Americans because they end up having the helicopters crash in the Iranian countryside when they try to liberate their own diplomats from Tehran. And in, in Tebi, they went in to the Uganda airport, saved all the passengers, um, and only one of their own people got killed. And that raid you know, really made Israel look like they're the best spies in the world, because they are, really are. When you, when you try out for Mossad, you got, you got a written test, and then you got an, uh, an oral test. So in the oral test, a typical example is you go down the street, and, the, and, and your examiner says, OK, you see that woman up there in the balcony? You've got five minutes to be sitting next to her. Go. And you've got to use your wits and figure out how to get in. So the guy will say, well, I'm an inspector from the, and you, know, you, you don't have to worry about obeying the law. I'm the inspector from the government, and I'm going to give you a big grant. But first, I have to take a survey of your apartment, and I want to have a look at the view out on the balcony. You've got to think fast on your feet. That's the kind of people they get involved in their spying agency. But still, the Mossad has made mistakes. They got the wrong guy in Northern Ireland or Ireland when they were trying to get revenge for the Munich terrorist hijacking. But because uh, they're such good spies, they have very, very close relationships with the CIA. And that's a very important bureaucratic explanation why we're an ally of Israel's. Because the world of secret intelligence agencies in the Western countries is one of secret cooperation that we never get to find out about. But I believe it's a very important factor in explaining why the United States supports Israel, when in fact, we do sacrifice a lot of support in the Arab world because we support their enemy. I'm not saying it's the wrong policy. I'm just saying it comes at a high cost. Any questions or comments? Your comparisons to South Africa. Well, South Africa, Israel, and the United States were all allies during the apartheid period. And um, South Africa was a big purchaser of Israeli arms, like the Uzi. Uh, they're both pariah states in the world. Israel has got one friend in the world, and that's us. It has no other friends. I know in the 80s it just seemed inconceivable that uh, the government of South Africa would eventually concede its. I think the Israelis understand that they're ultimately more secure with the Palestinian state that's so friendly than they are now. And certainly, the alliance with Egypt has been a spectacular success up until three weeks ago when now we don't know what will happen, but it, it will be interesting. Okay, so we'll talk about the EU. Remember, a week from today, we do have class, and then you'll have a week after that. No class a week from Thursday.